Imagine launching your own product aligned perfectly with your passions, heading out on an 18-month roadshow to market at your favorite outdoor spots, and having someone else pay for all of it. Sounds amazing, right? That's exactly what Boulder Denim co-founders Bradley Spence and Taz Barrett are doing. They hit the road in June in a custom Sprinter and Airstream trailer, traveling all over the U.S. to demo their unique stretchy pairs of jeans that work just as well climbing as they do out on the town. They started out with nothing more than an idea, but thanks to fearless knocking on doors and jumping at all the right opportunities, plus a comically random assortment of crappy high school jobs and college startups, they've pulled off the ultimate lifestyle business, and it could get huge. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Brad and Taz, you guys are a fairly young company. It's called Boulder Denim. Um, yeah. If you guys just want to shoot real quick so people know which voice is who, then we'll uh, dive in. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm Brad. And I'm Taz. Okay, sweet. And so I, I heard from some of the other people. We're sitting here at Outdoor Press Camp in Park City, Deer Valley, which is an amazing way to show off what you guys do to the press. And I actually interviewed the Press Camp founder, Lance Kamasaska, in an earlier episode, so you guys can check that out if you want to see cool. kind of what Press Camp is. But yeah. um the the funny thing is, you know, we all of us here just assumed you guys were from Boulder, Colorado, but it's yeah. not. So yeah. explain the name real quick, and then we'll talk about kind of what you guys are doing. Yeah, Boulder actually came from bouldering um, because we we originally created the jeans for climbing, and uh, Boulder just had a nice ring to it, and uh, and that's kind of where it came from. We yeah. didn't even really, I didn't really know of Boulder, Colorado, very much, anyways. <laughs> and it's funny coming down here, everyone's like, "Oh, so you're from Boulder?" <laughs> yeah, and I spent a bit of time there. I love Boulder, so I I love when people make the mistake. It's a it's a good one. Yeah, it really suits our branding, anyways. Like Boulder is such an outdoorsy place, and we love climbing, so it just works pretty well for us. Yeah, and you guys are from Canada, though. Yeah, yeah. from Vancouver, BC. Right. Yeah. yeah. Is there a lot of good bouldering and climbing up there? Yeah, there is. Class up at Squamish. Okay. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time uh, climbing out there. Sweet. Yeah. And so let's before we get into the the denim, the product itself. Well, actually, let's start with the product. So it's. It's a stretch jean mm-hmm. made for climbing. Yeah. Pretty flexible. You just got a pair of trying them on. They're very mm-hmm. comfortable. Very stretchy. And um, but like, do people climb in jeans? Because it... <laughs> before they they kind of did, which was what kind of shocked us. And uh, we asked them why they climb in jeans, and they're like, "Well, they protect my legs. They they're durable, um, and they look cool." Because when we first started climbing, <laughs> well, funny story. I lived in Toronto at the time, and Taz lived in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. We were both running a different kiosk business. And uh, I was really depressed in Toronto because my business was failing and not doing very well. And I actually ended up going on a Tinder date to a new climbing gym. And I didn't climb before that. And so it was all new to me. And I always tell people I fell in love with uh, climbing and not the girl. (laughs) 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 But uh, I absolutely became obsessed with climbing and I did it all the time. And then one day Taz came up to Toronto um, to visit me and he started, I got him into climbing as well. I told him all about it while I was in Toronto. And, we became, uh, we looked at each other and we're like laughing at each other, what each other were wearing because he was wearing like gym shorts and I was wearing these baggy yoga pants. He looks so goofy in them too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just didn't work and we're like, he's, his knees were all bloody and legs were all scraped up and so we looked around the gym we realized like there was, wasn't anything that was stylish and both functional and something that we'd want to wear out after to the bar or wear to work so and that's when we kind of decided to do it ourselves and yeah. All right, but right before we started, you guys first mentioned you were working together in a hot dog stand or something? No, (laughs) close. Uh, The old old spaghetti factory. Spaghetti factory. Yeah, yeah. So um, I I started working there when I was like 15, a summer job, first job actually, and I was uh, stuck in the dish pit, just sweating my butt off. Is it just a restaurant? 
Yeah, it's okay. a family restaurant. Okay. And um, so I was told that if I work really hard, I'll get out of the pit and then onto the floor as a busboy. And September comes around, it's three months in the pit, and Brad's there on work experience. He goes straight onto the floor and takes what I thought was my spot. So, of course, <laughs> I immediately hated Brad, and I was venting my anger to uh, one of our friends, Krista, who worked on the floor with him. And I'm like, man, I really don't like that guy. And Chris was like, that's funny, like, Brad really likes you. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, maybe I should give this guy a chance. So my first shift that we worked together, we got absolutely nothing done. And we had one of those moments where, like, did we just become best friends? <laughs> like, yeah, total step brothers. <laughs> and, um, yeah, ever since, we've had, like, five or six businesses. And, I mean, some of them, they didn't last very long. Some of them were quite successful. We moved on, and we've had some pretty big failures. But it's all kind of led to this one. Yeah. What were some of those early businesses? And, like, what were the the successes the failures like what did you guys learn from those yeah one of the more successful ones was our like web design business and we just made websites for seven hundred dollars and it doesn't matter how big it was really as long as it didn't complex had any complex coding and we found a way of doing it within like a day like we could bust out a website in like five hours and we did we got somehow we got number one on google and for if you typed in web design vancouver we showed up right away and we were busting out tons of websites so we did really well with that one and uh then we thought, I really wanted to get a job at the time when I was like 16 at Best Buy, and uh, same with Red Robin. So I couldn't. I kept giving my regular resume a Microsoft Word, and it wasn't working, and I wasn't getting interviews. So I decided to take the Best Buy um, flyer and Photoshop it into a resume. And I did the same thing with the Red Robin menu. I photoshopped it into a resume, and both companies hired me without even an interview. They were just like, your resume was so good, we have to hire you. And so Taz had the idea, he's like, man, people, your resumes are doing such a good job. I'm like, why don't we make a business out of it? So we decided to make a company called Emuser, which is spelled, his resume is spelled backwards, where we'd make people really fancy resumes that would like guarantee them a job or guarantee them an interview. And uh, the problem is we realized that people don't have money to spend on a resume when they don't have a job. We like literally sold not one resume. It was like horrible. We made a whole business plan. Yeah. and. It didn't yeah. work. It didn't work at all. So that's funny. What kind of job were you trying to get at Red Robin Best Buy? So my friends worked at Red Robin, so I really wanted to work there. And I was super into tech and gadgets and stuff when I was like sixteen. I just wanted to work in the iPod department at Best Buy so bad. And uh, and, and I wanted the Best Buy discount. Making your own websites and stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, that was I did the websites actually after uh, oh, okay. I worked at at uh, yeah. Some of the timeline is a little bit off, but yeah, I did that after Best Buy and uh, Red Robin. All right, and then you mentioned something about the kiosk as well like what was yeah what was that so we started i started a company in vancouver with two it's called zag invisible shield they're actually all over the u.s um i was the first person to bring the franchise to canada and it's just screen protectors that you put on phones and they have a lifetime warranty on them and everything and my first two locations did really well we sold lots of screen protectors i was making a lot of money as a 20 year old and uh then we decided to expand into Arizona, and uh, Taz was running the Arizona locations, and we did that business together. And then I had locations in Toronto, and the Toronto ones were doing horrible. The Arizona ones weren't doing much better, and it just turned out to be a really bad... It was a lot of money we put into it, too. Yeah. And because it was doing so well in Vancouver, we thought we could replicate it in other markets, and it just didn't work that way. So well, that why was Why do you when, think it didn't uh, carry over? One of the reasons I think it was a little bit of a fad, um, where especially in Canada, like it was like really cool this new technology where you could wrap an entire phone with polyurethane material. It was like a wet installation, so it's really tricky to install, um, and people liked it because they didn't have to put a case on their phone. You could just have this nice thin phone and have it looking like it's supposed to. The problem is that they came out with these glass screen protectors and everyone and their grandma are making them in China and they you get them for like super cheap and they're so easy to install that it kind of People stopped going to these kiosks to get screen protectors installed, and um, the polyurethane ones, like they weren't as clear as the glass. And we sold glass screen protectors, but it just didn't do as well. And the Canadian dollar got really, really bad. So buying inventory in U.S. dollars and selling it in Canada, we had to sell the screen protectors for like seventy bucks Canadian, mm. and it just it was too expensive. And the Arizona locations were actually ones that were already failing when we bought them. Oh. We were trying to turn it around, and we got them really cheap. And it was too little, too late, though. Yeah, with those guys. But, I mean, it was an amazing experience in terms of learning. Like, we selling all day long. Sometimes you deal with, like, 50, 60 customers throughout the day and open seven days a week. And so you have sales, you have customer experience. Um, 
SKU management and you just learn a bit about marketing. So that was a really good precursor to what we're doing right now. All right. And yeah. so it was the next step was Boulder Denim? Yeah, yeah that, that came out of the, me being depressed with the failing business in Toronto <laughs> and that Tinder date. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like if it wasn't for that Tinder date, I don't think uh, I ever would have discovered climbing. Uh, maybe yeah. it would have, maybe it would have happened. Who knows? But that's that climbing date is what got me into climbing so much. And, yeah. and if we, if we would have found a pair of jeans or a pair of pants, that were stylish and functional that we could climb in, we wouldn't be here today either. We would have just bought those pants and been on with it. And yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing right now. So, so what year was that date? And then how long after that until you introduced, until Brad introduced so, Taz to Yeah, I started in? climbing uh, almost three years ago. It'll be three years ago in August. Yeah, I was the end of October in 2014, so just over two and a half years. It took okay. me a lot of text messages and videos, and I sent him, like, yeah, He was relentless. <laughs> like, videos. I'm like, what are you doing? You're pulling on plastic inside a building? Like, this yeah. looks ridiculous. But I, I'm completely obsessed with it, maybe even more so than Brad now. Yeah, he's, he, he started training really hard, and uh, he got really, really, really good really quick. And, awesome. Yeah. And I'll put some pictures in the show notes podcast, or uh, blog post for this, but we're sitting inside you guys' Airstream that you're pulling behind a customized Sprinter. Yeah. And at the back of the... Airstream, you guys built a, a wood uh, bouldering wall, which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> Thank <laughs> so you. So cool. Thank you. Which doubles as a dressing room and a showroom for your your denim. So then, all right, so 2014, you kind of got into it. Yeah. And then it, you guys launched a Kickstarter for the jeans at the end of 2015. So it's yeah. a pretty quick concept. Um, yeah. From, like, before the Kickstarter went live, how long... Before that, did you guys have like a product idea and maybe samples or like what was the process? So it, it was March when I came up uh, for the first time to meet with Brad and we kind of figured out that there was a need for it. And we looked at a ton of different sports and we thought there would be something that would be suitable. Um, yeah, like cycling pants or anything. Anything, or yeah. yeah. And so we went through the process of building it out. Um, we were working with a, a friend, actually, her digital marketing company, and they helped us with the branding side of things. And it was quite a long process to find pants that we like, find cuts, refine the cuts. Uh, find a good manufacturer um, and that entire process uh, we delayed it a couple of times and we eventually launched in November so and there's a little bit more to the actual design process yeah like we uh, source fabrics from all over the world and uh, we couldn't find anything that would just sit well in your body it was all kind of you know how technical fabric is and synthetic fabric it kind of just floats <laughs> and uh, we wanted it to look like you're wearing a normal pair of pants whether it was a pair of chinos or or jeans, we didn't wasn't we weren't sure we were gonna do denim at the time, and I actually hate denim. I never wear jeans. Uh, Taz, he always loved denim. He lived them. Yeah, he liked yeah. his Levi commuters or whatever before. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so what? He was Kips has suggesting we find that we can do a denim, and I was like, I'm not doing denim. There's no chance in hell I'm doing <laughs> denim. I just don't like it, and it it's bag. I mean, most denim gets stretchy or it bags out and it loses its shape, and so I was just I was so against doing denim, but. Um, after failing to find fabrics that we liked, we went to Montreal to go to the textile district and to see if we could just stumble across one. We didn't. We failed. And at the end of the day, we ended up driving to the climbing gym to vent our like, stress out at the, on the wall. And uh, we actually drove past our, this building that had like women doing yoga in jeans on a big, in, in like some other manufacturing district. And we're like, wow, that's really cool. It doesn't even look like they're jeggings. It look like actual jeans. So. We knocked on their door and met with the owner immediately, and he fell in love with us. We fell in love with him and his business, and it kind of all stemmed from there. So we tweaked the fabric with him. Uh, and I found a way to weave the fabric. Uh, and it's actually patented, so the woven technology allows it to keep 92% of its stretch retainment, meaning they don't bag out like other jeans do. You can wear them for two years, and they'll keep the same shape as when you bought them. Hmm. Whereas most, on industry average, the stretch retainment on jeans is 60%. And ours is 92, so that's a huge difference. All right, so let's back up a little bit. Yeah. And so the yoga place that you drove by where the people were doing yoga in jeans. Yeah. Is, and you met with the owner. Was this the owner of a yoga studio, or this was the guy making those yoga jeans? He was making the yoga jeans. Okay. And they also, they're actually Canada's largest denim manufacturer, so they make jeans for other companies like Roots and um, other big brands as well. So but, you ended up finding a fabric pretty close to home. Yeah, fabric yeah. and a manufacturer all in one, which wow. really Stumbled helped. across yeah. it. Being able to make right. the jeans in Canada and have a Canadian product was super super we were looking for for either u.s or canadian manufacturing because we want to be sustainable and eco-friendly and our dyeing processes are all is all like abides by the canadian environmental laws so which is a lot more strict than if you were to make them in china or bangladesh or something 
Right. So the material then, it's it's denim, but is what makes it stretchy? Is it uh, lycra or? Yeah. So it's ninety three percent cotton and seven percent uh, is a blend of elastro polyester, um, spandex and lycra, and uh, the way it's woven and the way it's uh, actually stitched. So our denim, if you look very closely on it, it's actually um, on the diagonal. So we stitch it on the diagonal. So meaning it stretches in a circular motion like your body moves because your body doesn't move like a robot. So a lot of other denim just stretches up and down or side to side. So we kind of tweak that a little bit too, which helps even more with the stretch. Cool. And then from a a pattern standpoint, did you guys find like a pattern maker or or a clothing maker to come up with that? Or did you guys just start ripping apart jeans? And Well, um, one of the first things we did is I have a good (coughs) friend that works at a really big... uh, yoga line in Vancouver I'm not going to say who it is but I, I think you can kind of infer and she basically put us on the right direction of like what we need to look for um, assimilating like all our favorite features of a bunch of different pants um, we found a couple different uh, pants that we really like Brad has this crazy expensive uh, pair of pants I think they're from Europe they're like $250 and that's obviously like way too expensive for most climbers um, very technical looks super technical um, then we found another pant that was like very athletic um, it's big in the quads, big in the butt, uh, bigger in the calves. Uh, one of the issues that a lot of men have, like especially hockey players or um, skiers and cyclists, is that they have to size up their legs and then they get a ton of fabric uh, around their waist because it, it's, I guess, in proportion to their legs. So we've kind of tightened that up, which is what we call our athletic fit. Um, and then the women's uh, skinny, um, it's, it's quite inspired by like yoga style pants. Um, so it's very flexible, moves with the woman's body, um, and it's designed so like you could do yoga, like downward dog would be the most compromising position, um, where it would actually hide your butt crack. So you can like <laughs> take care of kids or be a photographer, like whatever it is you're doing, like you can know you can move and you don't really have to worry about showing off your underwear or something like that. Yeah, we so yeah we essentially took different pants and found our favorite features on them and then placed every stitch with intent to have the most movement with the body it's be but without a gusset so we a lot of other tactical pants out there especially jeans will have a gusseted crotch and we wanted our jeans to look like a normal pair of jeans and like you wouldn't tell by looking at them that you could go rock climbing them or do the splits in them um, but you can and that's the that's the cool thing about it and we had to reinforce the stitching so the, tr- the crotch wouldn't uh, tear so we have really really strong stitching and actually it's guaranteed for life so if the stitching were ever to break at the seams we'll replace it or repair it so it's one of our lifetime warranties cool. features. How many have you had to replace over the, the like no. you guys have only had the product out for what, like yeah. eight months now? So n- none yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We had yeah. we had one person uh they had like a faulty zipper or whatever, so we sent them a new zipper and they got it repaired and we reimbursed them for the for that. But that was it. We haven't had any any problems yeah. yet. So sweet. All right, so I wanna make sure we're clear on the timeline because you were just naming months. So it was it was two thousand fourteen when you kinda got into climbing. Yeah. And then, so November of 2014, you had the idea to do a pants or a, a product? Yeah, right? pretty much. Like, yeah, like almost right away. But okay. it wasn't really till March that we got together collectively and started working towards it. Yeah. So March 2015. Yeah, we had a business plan and started really thinking seriously about it. And, um, and then in June, we incorporated and hired marketing company to kind of help us and so where'd you get the money to start hiring people and, and, and like create a business before we even did the, the savings, we, savings well, right. that and yeah. we, we didn't have uh, the money we used our savings and yeah. then all the people like the marketing company um, our videographer our photographers all our models and actors um are the people that did our logo they all got paid after we did a successful kickstarter they all were bought in that we would be successful and we had an agreement with everyone that we would pay them after a successful Kickstarter. Yeah, so yeah. it was really cool to see them come together and everyone have a little piece in the game. And, yeah. uh, and the fact that they're willing to do that and they're all like at the top of their game, like the video production quality is amazing, sound production quality is like completely professional and the digital marketers we're working with, just like I love our branding and a lot of people say that they love our branding and we can totally attest that just to like who we worked with starting out right yeah so do you think the the quality of that production for the kickstarter campaign i'm assuming all the video and everything you're talking about was stuff used for the campaign yeah exactly do you think the quality of that film and pictures and everything else led to the success of the campaign and how did the campaign go like what was the original ask and what did you guys finish at um we originally asked for fifteen thousand dollars and that was to get our minimum order and we hit that goal within the first 30 hours Nice. And uh, we ended up with 90,000 US on Kickstarter. And then you can continue the campaign on Indiegogo. So we did that and we raised another $25,000 on Indiegogo the following month. 
and then we did pre-orders as well. We ended up doing $170,000 in a combination of all three. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was overwhelming. We did way more than we thought we would do. And Is it freaking uh, you out a little bit? Or? Oh, <laughs> yeah. like you have no idea. I remember because the first, uh, I came out, I think it was in October or November for two months before we did the launch because we just had so much to do. And uh, I, I quit my job um, on the condition that I could work for Brad. And the very next day, Brad's like, oh man, um, my lease didn't renew. <laughs> so you can't work for me. So I just quit my job. I'm I'm sitting on his couch. I'm like, did I just ruin my life? <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had so not. many <laughs> so many roadblocks like that that we had to pull through, and uh, it's really cool that we were finally here and on the road. And so, Ted, where were you living then? Um, Before, so I was in Arizona for two years in Scottsdale. Okay. Um, came back in February of I guess 2015. And I, I did like a little bit of random work. I went and saw Brad in March and that kind of like started the idea. But like, as you can tell, like it took us a long time to get up and running. Um, and then, so I was living in Vancouver at the time. Um, and then in October, November, that's when I came up to Toronto to work with Brad. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Brad, the, um, oh man, I was thinking of questions while you were talking and stuff always slips my mind. Happens in like every episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from the, the, the conception of the idea, like, you know, March, April of 2015 until the end of the year when you guys launched the campaign, like, so in, in that little, like, seven span, seven month span, you guys were able to, like, lock down the design, find manufacturing, get the, mm -hmm. the brand, like, basically you created we, everything yeah. except for finished product. Yeah. yeah, we had to do a lot of pre-marketing too. We had to collect emails and because yeah. um, you can't just people think you just launch Kickstarter and people will buy. It. <laughs> yeah. No one will see your Kickstarter if you don't do any don't do marketing. It'll show up on the way down on the bottom of the Kickstarter page and right. it, you won't get much. Uh, so we had to build an email list, and one of the things we did for that is we hired a developer to um, make this program like a referral program. So they got everyone that signed up their email got a special link that they could send to their friends. And if they got 10 friends to sign up to be notified when our jeans go on Kickstarter, um, they would get a free hat. And then if they got 25 friends, it'd be a free t-shirt. If it was 50 friends, you got a free pair of jeans. And uh, we also had a wallet in there as well. So we ended up collecting like six or 700 emails through that, like so quickly within like a month. And those emails, all those emails were in the first 30 hours of our Kickstarter campaign. Those were all people from those emails. So that like was a huge part of our success, doing getting our goal right away. And when you hit your goal that quickly, you become a popular uh, item on Kickstarter, right. whereas like you go to Kickstarter and you see us on the main page right away, and that just like, kind of snowballed from there. And then the media started hearing about us, and we ended up on CTV News and a couple of newspapers, and it just kind of snowballed and snowballed from there. So that's cool. Yeah, that's some great insight into running the Kickstarter campaign. That is, you try and hit that goal super fast. Yeah, yeah. So the so the the media pickup of it then is that something? Did you guys send out PR? Or did they just see it so going nuts on Kickstarter? Part of our savings went to like we spent a thousand dollars on um, a PR company, and they got us one article in Vietnam <laughs> and I think we got like one actual sale from that and like two scam sales that were like like fake credit cards or whatever and <laughs> so it did not do us well at all and I kind of gave up on the PR front for like hiring someone else to do it and I just took the initiative to email um, newspapers and TV stations and told them our story and made it really personable didn't do a press release it was just like straight up email found out a little bit about each editor and personalized it to them and uh, it worked really well. That's how we kind of snowballed into all the PR outlets. Cool. How did you uh, research the editors that you were sending that to? Either LinkedIn or I would like Google their name and find out other articles they did. And I would have been like, hey, I really liked your article on this, this, and this. And then I would, that was the first line they would read. So like, oh, this guy knows my work, I guess. And I was just really hoping that they would read the entire email. Right. Because I think those PR people get so many emails oh, every yeah. single day. Yeah, you probably know, right? <laughs> yeah, we get hundreds. And <laughs> I just, ridiculous. you got to stand out somehow. And I like, I try to find the best way possible. And it worked. So yeah. I don't think I'd spend a money on a PR person anymore. But events like this press camp has been overwhelmingly supportive. And um, I, I see a lot of good coming out of it. So Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's nice when you can get right in front of the editors and the, the different media outlets and stuff yeah. directly. But um, yeah, that's it's a good point though. It's like, I think people go with a PR firm because they just don't know what to do or also, you know, like I'm sure you guys are all wearing, you're both wearing a million hats, like you yeah. know, I am for bike rumor and stuff. And 
every small business owner, you know, and so sometimes it's just a bandwidth thing. Like you just yeah. don't have time because it probably yeah. took a lot Whatever. of time to research them and to write an individual email to everybody instead of just yeah. shotgunning a press release and hoping for the best. Yeah, during the Kickstarter campaign, it's like you don't just sit there and watch for sales. You're working every single day, every hour of the day. Yeah. And uh, we set our TV up in the background and every time a new Kickstarter sale went through, this dollar sign or like a cash register <laughs> noise came up and we had it on our big screen like, 50 inch TV or whatever and yeah. I remember taking a photo in front of it like a selfie when we had we hit our goal and we're like ah yeah. so, so happy but we were there all day for like yeah. all for the 45 days while our campaign yeah. was on just right. working our butts off <laughs> what were so as the campaign went on like once you'd met your goal like what were some of the other things you were doing to try and keep pushing it and promoting it and growing it well uh, we had a pair of traveling pants because we only had a <laughs> a couple samples and man they were expensive so uh, we had a woman's pair and a men's pair and we actually shipped those around the world and so you'd send them to one athlete like a, a climber uh, Kelsey she's one of our ambassadors now and she went and climbed in Indian Creek in them and gave us a uh, uh, just like the most amazing review we could have asked for um then she sent them to someone else and th those went all around north america and then we had a pair of pants and um i think spencer had them originally uh, he's a world record uh, holding uh, highliner and those went over to europe to like a hockey player and then to andre burton who's a trials rider and just got photos and it was it was cool because like it's it's a funny thing to explain that we have a one pair of pants that someone else wore <laughs> But so many different people sized people it. too are yeah. all fitting into the same pair of jeans, which shows how stretchy they are. But uh, that was a huge campaign. It was funny actually. I was doing a little jean demo day in Brooklyn, New York, um, a couple a couple months later, and uh, some girl comes up to me, and we haven't even manufactured the jeans yet. We just had the samples, um, and some girl comes up to me and she's like, "Hey, I'm wearing your jeans," and I'm like, "No, no, you're not. <laughs> That's impossible." And she's like, "No, I, I'm really wearing your jeans," and I'm like, I look over like the counter and. Sure enough, she's wearing her jeans. I'm like, how the heck? She's like, I'm one of the traveling pants people. Like, you sent me these jeans. And I was like, wow, it's nice to meet you. Like, how do you like them? And it was just so random to see her, this girl in Brooklyn, wearing her jeans. And we only had one pair, so what a small world to, like, run into her. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So once the the Kickstarter and then the Indiegogo closed and stuff, you guys were also doing pre-sales on your website, I guess? Um, yeah, we did a lot of pre-orders. And... People didn't care that they had to wait nine months for their jeans, really. And we obviously, we, we thought we were going to deliver them earlier, but we had so many delays and we let everyone know, like, every step of the way, this is why we're delayed, why KK isn't talking to us. <laughs> they, they said it would be six months before we get buttons. And so there were so many little delays and um, the hydrophobic treatment had some technical issues. And so we just let our every backer know and all the pre-orders know, like, exactly what was happening every step of the way. And we only had one angry customer who's actually a friend of ours <laughs> but it was really funny that he was the one that he's the only one that was mad um not really a close friend obviously <laughs> but uh you know everyone was really supportive and understood so that's funny so all right so once it closed um how long did it take from like kickstarter closing till you guys get the money uh it's a 15-day process all right yeah so were you guys just sitting there like yeah, patiently waiting, waiting yeah. to go. And I mean, can't. our uh, manufacturer knew we had the the money, so they could kind of start a little bit because they knew it was coming. But uh, it was there's so much else we had to wait for, like the buttons and tags and all these like little things you don't realize how long it takes to get manufactured. And right. it's a it was a whole a lot of road bumps. Yeah, a lot of maintenance too between those 15 days that you're waiting for your money. So it's yeah. kind of a in the back of your mind. Right. So what was the first step then? Um, did the manufacturer go ahead and start cutting the fabric and getting that stuff laid out while they were waiting on all the little bits and pieces to come in? Yeah, they, uh, they actually created us some more samples first because uh, we need some samples to send out and do more demo days to, to kind of just start the general branding while we were made. So they did it in their small shop and <coughs> created us some samples. And then from there, they kind of, they all, all at the same time, they were starting to manufacture all the sizing and make sure all the sizing was working, like that the size 24 has the same proportions as like a size... 30 or whatever and so it was really trying to tweak everything to make sure everything fit right no matter what the size and in the end we had we had a lot of sizing issues with the women's jeans and we fixed them with our new ones but just another one of our roadblocks that we've had to overcome yeah. right so when you guys launched did you plan on launching with a full size run or were you doing like limited sizes i know with bikes a lot of times you know the first production run might be like medium and large to hit the mm -hmm. vast majority of riders and then you know the extra smalls and the extra larges come online later and I've, I've seen that with other things too um but so how'd you guys do the sizing was it 
the full run. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the nice thing about Kickstarter is like when you do send out a survey, you can ask people exactly what size they are. So um, when they back, they say, yeah, I just want a pair of jeans or a t-shirt or a hat, whatever it is. And then we got the exact order of what we needed to produce. And we just did that and then added on, I don't know, like 25, 40%. Yeah, I think about 40% extra jeans on top yeah. of every every order. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a pretty good pretty good combination. But as soon as they shipped to Kickstarter, we sold those extra 40% almost two, like two weeks later. Yeah. And we had nothing to sell for <laughs> so <right> long. <laughs> yeah. So you did that first run and then... Like, how long before you scheduled your second run? We scheduled it, like, right away. As soon as we sold out, we, like, yeah. scheduled it right away. Um, I actually went on Dragon's Den, um, which is, like, the Canadian version of Shark Tank. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even tell Taz. I forgot to tell him. But, so, <laughs> I'm, like, on... So only you went on? Yeah, well, not, no, actually. So, in front of the producers, it was only me. But on Facebook, I saw, like, this thing that said, Last Chance for Dragon's Den Auditions. At the time, I was living in London, Ontario. The auditions were in Toronto, Ontario. So, I drove two and a half hours. Um, to get to Toronto, I got there at like five in the morning, thinking I'd be the first person in line, but huh. I was like twentieth or whatever. But I waited patiently, and I got up there, and I ended up doing both roles. So I pretended I was myself, and then I pretended I was Taz. So I'd be like, "Hey, I'm Brad," and then I'd be up the side, I'm like, "Hey, I'm Taz, and I'm really good looking and muscular." And then I would go back and like do the whole pitch, and they they loved it. They the next day they like called me and like, "Yeah, we have to have you on the show." And so we brought a rock climbing wall inside, and like I called Taz, I'm like, "Hey, our text Taz." Yeah. We're going to be, hey, man, we're going to be on Dragon's Den. I'm like, you mean we're going to audition? He's like, no, no, we're on in three weeks. Book a ticket. I'm like, uh, what? He's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you I auditioned. <laughs> <laughs> Completely crossed my mind. I yeah. lost my mind. But <laughs> Good surprise, though. All right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I want to jump back to that because that's awesome. But I, I've got a quick question mm-hmm. to finish off the sizing and stuff like that. So then do when you got to come up with sizes that you guys don't wear and all that is it um is it a pretty formulaic thing or do you really need like models in every size to work that out we tested them on a lot of different body types especially the women um and it's impossible to make a gene that's going to fit everyone but we our genes fit and flatter like most body types Mm -hmm. and even just the one size but we're developing a new uh cut the athletic cut for women women so just like the men's athletic cut we want to do one for women as well so we'll have two for each. And then we're coming up with new colors and styles later as well. It is like with your manufacturer, they were doing yoga pant jeans and stuff. Did they kind of have like some forms or, or uh, patterns for those different sizes and you guys were making yeah. tweaks? Or did you really it definitely have to start helped. from scratch? No, they definitely yeah. helped us in that. And uh, it kind of sped up a lot of the, the trial and error process. So um, like we took, like we just said earlier, we took a bunch of different pants and kind of like found our favorite features from each one and like yeah. incorporated them to one pant into their first style, but we were like, oh, we need to make the crotch a little bit bigger here and do this. So every stitch was placed with like uh, extreme intent. And like, there's no stitch on our jeans that were like, we, ne- we needed to move this way and everything was super important that way. So, right. yeah. Okay, so Dragon's Den. Well, so the, the proceeds from the Kickstarter and you go and all the pre-sales and stuff like that was, was how, what percentage of that was used to create create that first batch of product? All of it. Like other than what we paid for our marketing team and all our videographers, we'd promised we'd pay if we hit our goal. Right. Um, every cent went to yeah, and we put even more money of our own into it as we earned it. Yeah. So how did so where did the money for the second production run and like future production runs yeah. come from if you use like all of it on that first? Run? So I have to go back to the Dragons Den story to answer that question because. Um, we ended up doing a deal on on Dragon's Den and with one of the dragons but we also wanted to partner with our manufacturer because they seemed like the perfect partner and they wanted to partner with us too but everything was moving really slowly so um, I think the Dragon's Den might have helped us a little bit with the negotiations with our manufacturer so that kind of sped things up so our second batch was paid for 100% by our manufacturer because we now have a partnership with them which is helping us enormously and they're what they're the ones that paid for this airstream and sprinter and they believe in taz and i so much and they love the tour idea about touring across north america for 18 months and <laughs> just doing an old school branding tour and they loved every aspect of that so they're behind us and they believe in us and the dragon's den thing just was kind of like reassurance for them too like oh wow they they pitched in front of the dragon den and um, that was really cool to, to kind of go through that experience. Yeah. Well, if anything, like if it's anything like Shark Tank, which I, I've, I've heard it is, yeah. I've never seen that show, but it's uh, probably gave you guys a ton of just general consumer exposure as well. Yeah, that was, mm-hmm. it was great was for awesome. that. Yeah. Actually, two of the two of the sharks are originally dragons. They were on Dragon's Den first. So Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, mm-hmm. 
and I always forget his name. I should find out because I always say this, but the Croatian guy um, is also originally a dragon. So Croatian Canadian guy. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Then um, so did did one of the dragons end up investing as well then, or did you just use that as leverage to get the manufacturer? Kind of use it as leverage. We didn't want to like hold it over the head. If you don't do the deal, we're gonna go with the dragon. But right. it did help a little bit, and uh, they the dragon wanted us to sign a form that said we wouldn't be in talks with any other investors. And Taz and I looked at each other, we're like, we can't do that because uh, we're already kind of in talks with our manufacturer. So, um, and they kept emailing us like a month later or two months later, kept asking, hey, can we do a deal? And we were still finalizing our negotiations with our manufacturer. So I kept saying no. And in the end, it just, it fell through because we did our deal with our manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Right. That's got to take a fair amount of, uh, for lack of a better word, balls to tell, you know, that you've been on the show and you, you they're excited about it and you end up putting them off, putting them off. Yeah. You, I, were you guys worried that they would just be like, you know what, if you guys aren't interested, forget it. hundred percent. And that's yeah. why we really wanted to speed it up with our manufacturer because yeah. we didn't want them to lose interest. But the fact that they kept emailing was, it felt really good that they really did see something in us and, and wanted to partner with us. But uh, 20%, I would say like 20% of people that go on and make a deal on that show actually follow through with it. I think a lot of the people just go on there for the publicity. Um, we went on there for both. Because um, we did truly want investment, and we and we weren't sure if our manufacturer was for sure gonna partner with yeah. us, so it did help. Yeah, and there there was a little time between when we basically had to say no to the deal, and then say yes to our deal. So there was like, did we make the right decision? <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And let's see. So the eighteen month tour is this mm. part of the tour right now? Or are you guys on the road? This for is our first months? event. Four, yeah. five days in, I think we are now. Yeah, like, yeah. A long time on the road ahead. Of we you. do, yeah. So, how did you map out where you wanted to go? Like, do you guys have? Um, well, what what's the sales process like? Are you going into retail as well, or is it going to be direct to consumer only? Retail as well. We originally started as direct to consumer online, obviously through Kickstarter. Right. Um, and yeah, like the whole idea behind the tour is like the Boulder Denim pilgrimage. Like, go to all these crags, get out there, go climb at all these iconic spots. And then Sounds we terrible. I mean, it's <laughs> somebody has to do it though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we had to obviously like fund the whole thing. So we're going to be going to to climbing gyms, and we're going to be meeting with buyers and going to events like this and. Uh, outdoor retailer and uh, Craig and Classics International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming, right. um, and yeah, just kind of like getting in front of our customers and letting people try on the jeans uh, while we build up the brand. Climbing with our customers, climbing yeah. with our ambassadors, and meeting all our back because we have ambassadors all across the country and every city if we go to, I feel like we have at least one ambassador there. So it'll be really cool meeting every single one of them yeah. and really connecting with them on a more personal level than just emails and phone calls. But yeah. So the ambassadors, are they like well-known climbers? Or Some are. We have an, It's called an everyday ambassador program. So we have different levels and we have some people that are Olympic hopefuls, like that'll probably be in the 2020 Olympics. And we have some people that are just really tight in their community and everybody knows them at the climbing gym. And uh, they may not be the strongest climbers, but um, they're just really well, really well known or got really good Instagram accounts or they're really good photographers so we have all sorts of yeah and it's not purely based just on like how many followers do you have it's like the, a lot of these people we've met and we know that they're huge in the community like the type of person that you go into the gym and every single person knows them they're nice they give back they're out there building trails or scrubbing crags and so that's like what we wanted to do is like have these people who are like really just representing our brand really well, representing the sport really well, and the type of people that we'd want to spend time with. Like one of our ambassadors, uh, Gavin Johnson, he's been there since day one. He helped us with our launch in Vancouver, and he's just like an absolute, just like the sweetest guy. And he also sold so many, like 20 pairs of jeans during our yeah, first event for us. Yeah, it made like, us look bad. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't even told you, like, all the, I mean, obviously he's an ambassador, he knows the features. I'm like, I didn't even give you a, like how to sell them, and he was just. I get back and he's like oh, I just sold three more and like, every time I come back he was just killing it so yeah. thank you Gavin if you're listening to this <laughs> how did you find these people uh, a lot of them were through the gym um, it just because like we've climbed at dozens of gyms now um, we've a lot of them come through uh, Instagram they'll just message us and they go to our website and uh, sign up that way um, and we kind of like we have a bit of a vetting process just to make sure they're they're on pace with us they're not looking for free gear because there's a lot of people that just mm -hmm. want some free swag and um yeah, just, I don't know. I, I manage that program, and um, I just build a relationship with them and just make sure their heart's in the right place and that we're going to get along and kind of give them a chance to work their way up if they're not already there. Yeah. Another way we find uh, ambassadors is 
um, we'll have one ambassador in Vancouver, and because especially climbing is such a tight-knit community, they might know another climber in Alabama or something, and uh, they'll be like, oh, you got to meet this person, and like, they'll be such a good ambassador for you, so then we'll contact them, and uh, we got a lot of good referrals as well, and that sort of, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Sweet. The... The rest of the tour, the retail side of it then. So first question on retail is like when you guys um, started pricing these, and what, what is the price of a pair of jeans? 148 US, Okay, yeah. so when you figure that out, did you were you conscious of building in retail and possibly even distributor margins, or were you just kind of like looking at what the market was already? Our pricing was originally 129 uh, direct to consumer, and we knew we'd have to raise the price once we were ready to go into wholesale. So we sent a message to every previous buyer or person that bought our jeans, and we said, hey, you have last chance to get them at direct-to-consumer pricing. It's going up in two weeks, and uh, actually, I think it might have been like three days. Three days. Yeah, right. And we had so many sales that those three <laughs> days, it was like the, one of our best sales, like a couple of days ever. And uh, so that really helped, and I think people understand that we, we need to go into retailers and uh, that the extra prices, they would have to pay for it anyways. Like um, the direct-consumer model was great while we were online only, but right. yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, twenty bucks isn't, or thirty bucks, whatever. It's not a yeah. huge hike. It's not like yeah. you're doubling the price or anything. Yeah, and it's still totally within the margin of what people are willing to pay. Like there are some cheaper options, not quite the same level of quality. On the much more like technical side of things, you're looking at two hundred dollars plus, and like it's not something you want to wear outside of the gym, or you you can't really perform in them necessarily the same way. Right. Yeah, and being made in Canada too, it costs a little bit more to actually manufacture them rather than manufacture them overseas. So. That's another reason why our price point's like in the mid to high range, but it's, uh, they're not too expensive, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. So when you guys bring the product into the U.S., then are there, like, what are the duties or tariffs, taxes, like, what, what does it cost you to bring it into the U.S.? Well, thanks to the NAFTA agreement, nothing. Good. <laughs> but Trump's okay. talking about getting rid of that, so <laughs> I don't want to get too political on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right on. So yeah. that's good for now. Then, so you guys can sell, you know, whatever the exchange rate is. You just kind of like make it up. So like yeah. that that one fifty price is that um, U.S. dollars or U.S. dollars. So it actually works right. out to two hundred and four dollars Canadian. Oh, so that's one of the reasons why we're going through <laughs> U.S. first to kind of right. get that market dialed, and we're hoping the Canadian dollar goes back up. But it's uh, because the oil is going down right now. That so is our dollar, and it's uh, so if the Canadian price. dollar goes back up, does, will that affect the U.S. retail price then, or will it just bring down? You no, know, it'll Canadian just they price? would stay the same essentially. Okay. Um, so it'd be a beautiful day once our if our dollars ever become par again, it'd be great to just have one forty eight Canadian, one forty eight U.S. And uh, we're gonna be releasing more styles, maybe without uh, one of our features that we'll talk about later, and they'll be a little bit cheaper than than our full fledged, full featured jeans right so well, what, why we're on it then what's that feature that's our nanosphere technology it's a shoulder company like a swiss company yeah and uh it's like you see it often in the rain jackets and whatnot and we treat our pants with that which is not very cheap to do especially in jeans it's never been done on jeans before so um that's a little, little bit of a learning process on how to actually treat them so it would actually stay and work and it would last long through washes so it actually repels anywhere between red wine, sweat, um, d chalk, dust, dirt, mud, and uh, they just don't stain. It's it's really cool. Um, we did a lot of tests with red wine and mustard and random things. Yeah, and what <laughs> is, does that coating wash off? Or No, we uh, did a, a test with 70 washes and it, how, what's the percentage? Of 70, per, yeah, 70 washes and it would only lose 30% of its effectiveness. Yeah. So it would still be 70% effective, uh, which was, that's huge. It's like, I don't, especially for jeans, that's quite large. Yeah. And it repels body oils as well, which is really nice because that means they're not going to stink. Uh, Brad wore his pair in Europe for over a month and they didn't smell by the time we got back and we got up to a lot of stuff over there. Yeah, we were cycling in Amsterdam and climbing in 30 degree weather in the UK and... 30 degrees Celsius. Celsius, sorry. Yeah, yeah that's, that that's like 80-ish, I think. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> warm. warm. Yeah, it's hot yeah. and humid. Yeah. <laughs> Right on. Uh, so for, as you're planning out this tour then, beyond the promotional stops and all that, like mm -hmm. what types of retailers are you guys trying to get in and, and are you finding it difficult at all or what are the challenges in getting stores to pick it up? Yeah, well we haven't started yet, but one of our philosophies is we want to hit uh, smaller independent stores first. We don't really, we want to be an REI one day, but uh, we've, we want to go into mom and pa shops, like independently owned stores first because usually it's the owner selling the products or like they're two employees and if we have our jeans in their store in their small store and they'll be able to sell them a lot more than someone at REI where they have a hundred pant selections. Um, so we're on first part of our tour we're going to be meeting with a lot of independent stores 
and uh, trying to get into there first. And we have next week we're going to be in Salt Lake City and meeting with a bunch of different buyers from small shops like Year 30 and Ogden and just tinier, more independently owned stores essentially. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Good deal. Mm-hmm. So this is very young the company. And you guys are young. Like, how old are you? 29. Brad's 29. I'm 28. Okay. Yeah. I would have guessed younger, actually. But yeah. Everyone yeah, does. Still. <laughs> yeah. Baby faces. I still get yeah. to eat everywhere. Even in Canada, our drinking is only 19. But every time we go to the, the liquor store, they always ask me for my ID. Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. All Can't right. grow a beard either, so. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help. It's like, what are some of the, the big maybe one or two top challenges you guys have faced so far and then what are uh, maybe one or two pieces of advice you guys would give to somebody who wants to do something similar um, for me it's it's honestly like being mental challenges because there's so much uncertainty about building a product that you're unfamiliar with um, and there's a lot of waiting like and you have to be patient and the thing that really helps like with the two of us like we've been best friends since we're 15 and if I'm unsure about something, Brad will reassure me and vice versa. So it's like, you, you, we're not in it alone. And uh, it's just a matter of like staying the course and doing the work because it's like, by no means did this happen overnight. It happened quickly, but not overnight. And there's a lot of times where like, oh man, are we doing the right thing? Like, should we just get real jobs? Yeah. My, the biggest obstacle for me was all the delays we had and uh, having to tell all the customers that oh, it's going to be another three months. <laughs> it's going to be another month. Yeah. And that was like a really hard part for me. But uh, again, being vocal with them and letting them know it kind of really helped and my advice for someone looking to do something similar is if you think it's going to take three months times that by three at least yeah. <laughs> like everything takes way longer than you expect and everything costs way more than you expect and uh like we in the end of it we didn't make any profit from our kickstarter we just spent so much money on the video production and this and that and it was it created a brand which was huge it was really rewarding but we didn't really go on kickstarter to put $20,000 in our pocket and go travel or something. It was like, it was work and uh, it was yeah. just to build the brand and yeah. it did a good job and it got people loving the product and that really helped. Yeah. And my advice would be to test your idea or product with people who are unbiased and do it as fast as you can possibly can. Don't waste time on a business plan. Just like as soon as you have a product and idea, like get in the hands of people who will be honest with you. And that's what we did in the gyms. Like people who had no idea and no vested interest in our success. I didn't know us at all. So I'd see someone like climbing in jeans and I'm like, why are you climbing in jeans? Yeah. <laughs> Would you buy our jeans? And I just kind of like quizzed everyone I saw and like, or someone climbing in shorts or like just, I would just ask everybody at the gym. And it was actually a great way to kind of meet a lot of new people at the gym too because I ended up talking to like every single one of them. Right. <laughs> but we did a market research and yeah, that was, Taz's advice is probably some of the best advice we could give too is just make sure people want your product because we had businesses before where we thought people would want it, and it turned out to, to fail. So, because yeah. um, no one wanted to buy it. So, yeah. Yeah. The what were you guys pricing the jeans at on Kickstarter? Like, what was the deal? Through, we had a bunch of pricing. Uh, the first hundred buyers or something like that got early bird discount, which was eighty nine dollars, and then the next hundred buyers got a slightly less early bird discount, which was ninety nine. Then everyone else got one oh nine, and then we had another deal where it was like jeans and a t shirt for one twenty nine. So, do you think? Do you think you should have charged a little bit more than on Kickstarter so that you had some money left over, or do you think you yeah and we should have just plowed it right no, into production anyway? No, not the not necessarily the price of the jeans, but what, what I would have done is charge more for shipping. We pay we didn't charge our customers enough for shipping, especially international orders, and that was one of our biggest mistakes as well. Is like some of these jeans cost like one hundred twenty dollars to ship to Dubai, oh and I was just we charged them like. $15 or something and so we lost a lot of money in, in on some particular orders um, but the US we charged $10 US and I think it cost us between 12 to $15 so we lost a little bit of margin on those yeah. but that's one of the reasons why we weren't as profitable as we thought we'd be but again it created the brand and it, we pretty much we just just above broke even and we used all the extra money to make extra jeans yeah so. and that's a very common issue like we're helping a friend with his Kickstarter and I'm like it's a lot of work, but spend the time to figure out how much it costs to ship to every place that you're offering to send your product. Because right. we personally know of somebody who, uh, they had to sell a vehicle to pay for the <laughs> added shipping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 25% of their total campaign raised, uh, extra had to go to shipping. It's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, great advice. And, all right, so I'm curious, just like, how are you guys paying yourselves? Is it the manufacturer? Do they kick in more money or is it just yeah. off of revenues? Yeah, we agreed on a, when we partnered with them on a, very small salary. <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, it's not that small. It's enough to live live off of, and uh, 
our food is paid for through the trip as well as long as we're not eating out at fancy restaurants all the time and um so yeah it's uh especially because we're on on the road and we're not really buying anything for ourselves anymore and in fact we keep trading jeans for collaborations with other companies and it's it works out because it's like we both do a post on our instagram we both get free product and um it's just like bartering with people has been and doing collaborations with other companies in similar sizes has been really really good for us so how do you manage that from an inventory standpoint because i know like when you gave me the demo pair you were writing down like what size and model and all that yeah so we marked down how many we're giving away how many we're selling and uh like at this press gap we've given a pair of jeans to every uh, press person that we've met and uh, because we want you to experience the jeans and, and like them. And I think the more you wear them, the more you'll want to write about them, hopefully. So, yeah, it's a big part of it. Is that just like a marketing write-off? Like, what? how do you yeah. line out of that? It's all in part marketing. of our marketing expenses. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's not as much as it's just the cost of the jean, not the wholesale cost. So it's it's not too bad for us. But, uh, right. yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, hopefully you get one good story out of it. You sell 20, 30 pair, right? Like yeah. You, get, you make up for it. And exactly. Two pair, probably. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what you costs are you probably don't want to say but uh, cool man well this is an awesome airstream i hope you guys have a safe trip and thank, you. thank you have fun if you hit north carolina look me up and we will you. be yeah oh, yeah. oh sweet yeah. that'd be awesome right on all right thanks guys this hey, is fun hearing your story it. what impresses me most about brad and taz is their energy and enthusiasm the product is great but it takes a lot to go from idea to market and they work their butts off to make it happen. They also had the courage to just go for it and figure out next steps along the way. They prove it doesn't take years of experience, it just takes action. Knock on doors, ask questions, and seek out opportunities. You can't wait around for these answers to come to you, you've got to get out there and find them. Boulder Denim launched through Kickstarter, but by no means was that the beginning of the project. Prior to that, they lined up production, refined the product, and set up an ambassador program to build buzz. So when the campaign went live, it had momentum from day one. They hit their goal more than eight times over and ended up carrying that momentum onto Dragon's Den. Then using that deal as leverage to get their supplier to invest in the company. It's all very impressive, and it just goes to show what can happen when you hustle. Be sure to check out the show notes at thebuildcycle.com and hit the blog page. I've got pics of their custom trailer, products, and photos from their roadshow, plus links to their website and social media. Speaking of which, be sure to follow me at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for bonus content between podcast episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Build Cycle on your favorite podcast player and leave me a rating and review. I want to know what you think of this podcast. Until next time, keep building.